With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640 and everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, If you haven't been listening to my show, you may not know that I have a PhD in clinical psychology And with an emphasis on attachment theory, the ways people attach across the lifespan. I consider myself an evolutionary psychologist because I really believe we have evolved as human beings to have a certain set of behaviors that were designed to make us fit and ready to reproduce. So while some people might call me a relationship expert, um, I like to think of myself as an evolutionary psychologist. Um, because really, relationships are what it's all about. I also teach psychology of health counseling, and I am particularly obsessed with how our physical body can be impacted by our personal relationships, our social world, our environment in general. And as we've entered the technological age, I'm really fascinated by how technology is shaping us. It is literally changing us. Do you remember not so long ago when you had at least 50 to 100 telephone numbers memorized in your head? I don't even know my best friend's phone number anymore because on my iPhone, it just has her name. I click on it. That's it. I've forgotten it all. I put navigation on my car even when it's a regularly run route so that I don't have to think. I just let the car do it. And I can relax when I'm driving. So in this way, we have outsourced some of our intelligence to the box in our hand. Eventually, it'll be implanted. Trust me. We're already cyborgs in some way because we've outsourced our memories to that box, that iPhone. One of the other things about technology is it makes us constantly, cognitively wired, thinking connected. We have a lot of problem with being alone, with being still, with being creative and letting our thoughts just flow and drift. You know, I'm of a certain age. I didn't own my first computer until I was 30. So I have a chunk of my life, the majority of my life, with memories of not having technology being absolutely bored in the summertime, saying to my mom over and over, I'm bored, I'm bored. And she'd say, go outside, have fun. And I was forced to create a fairy village in the forest with sticks and mushrooms and make a place setting on a log and pretend I was doing a magical dinner party. I was forced to climb trees and sit in the trees and Look at the ants and bugs and birds up in the trees. I was forced to be down in the grass, picking up little buttercups and believing that if you held that buttercup under your chin, if it shined yellow, it meant you were telling a lie. 
It was a truth serum, those buttercups. That was my childhood. Kids today can't be alone for a moment. I mean, they spend too much time physically alone, but their minds are never alone. They're always looking at a screen. I dropped my teenage daughter off at school the other day, and she stood on the corner watching the light. And as soon as the light turned green, her head went down, her hair obscuring her peripheral vision. And she stared at her phone while crossing the street in traffic. I'm like, wow. They can't even look around them when their life is at stake. You know, years ago, I've seen many therapists in my life. Not many, actually. I stick with them. I'm a loyal dog. I've seen all of three, I think. Uh, But my very first therapist I saw early in life um, prescribed meditation to me. And I thought it was weird and kooky and religious. And how could somebody with a PhD who was a full-on psychiatrist and a medical doctor prescribe meditation? But she told me to make an altar in my house. And what she was really saying is a regular place you go to where you can go into a state of relaxation, not hooked up with any religion necessarily. So I opened the armoire in my bedroom way back when, and I put a candle in there. I put my mother's rosary um, because it reminded me of my mother. And um, I sometimes would have a little flower, stick it there. And that was my meditation space. And I would sit down as prescribed and I would take a few deep breaths and I would feel my body relax as she instructed when I would feel the thoughts rush along, I would just gently guide them to the side and come back to the breath. Well, within a few minutes, I would feel tears streaming down my face. This was so disturbing to me. I thought to myself, I must be suffering from clinical depression and not know it. She encouraged me, by the way, she's famous now. Her name is Dr. Judith Orloff. She has lots of books out. Um, She encouraged me to continue to do this and push through, she said, and just relax and not be afraid of the feelings. Let the feelings come, that they would be very helpful when we would get around to therapy. Eventually, I stopped crying when I meditated. However, I now teach meditation in my psychology of health classes to my students, and some students have reported that they get tears in their eyes when they meditate, and they don't know why or they feel sad afterwards. It reminded me of me when I was younger, so I did a little research. In fact, there's a great article on psychologytoday.com called Solitude as Medicine by Virginia Thomas. And in it, she talks about the science of solitude and how sometimes it can actually bring feelings of sadness, and this is a good thing. She says that the major functions of solitude is learning emotional regulation. Here's the problem. We're operating at a high key at all times. We're talking, we're going, we're driving, we're thinking, we're calling people, we're texting people, we're fueled by caffeine as we do all of that. We're in a high state of stress in many ways in our life. And we sit down to solitude, real feelings show up. The ones we should be paying attention to, the ones that might have been making us feel sick if we're ignoring them. So in this article, she points to two sets of studies that look at what solitude and meditation does to our feeling. Basically, one study 
looked at teenagers, uh, gave them a depression index before and after they were asked to be alone. And overall, the researchers found that the relationship between solitude and psychological health was positive. That means that the more solitude, the better your mental health. However, teens who spent just a moderate amount of time alone, and that was defined as about 20% of their waking hours, were better adjusted. And they did this by measuring for depression, teacher ratings, problem behaviors, their academic scores, etc., Those who spent very little time alone or a whole lot of time alone weren't doing so well with their mental health. These kids also felt, uh, I mean, the ones that were alone and had to be creative, you know, play the guitar, write a poem, journal, not look at a screen, not call somebody, found these kids to be less self-conscious. They had better levels of concentration, lower rates of depression and alienation. Another study looked at, remember I said we run around in a high key all the time? Looked at the difference between high arousal states and low arousal states. And those high arousal states that most of us run around in, I certainly do, I'm an extrovert all day long, are very stimulating and can be experienced as very pleasant. It makes me feel social, makes me feel excited. But for some people, it can make them feel angry or anxious. However, when we're in a low arousal state, we're basically deactivating our nervous system. We're going from fight or flight into rest or digest. And those states can help you feel calm and relaxed. Or you might have unpleasant feelings, like feeling bored or lonely. So what they found is that people who are used to being in a high arousal state like I was when I first began meditating, when they go into a low arousal state, they often feel bored, lonely, or they become aware of important feelings that, they, that need attending to. And this is how we learn emotional regulations. Solitude helps us learn how to regulate our mood which is the most important hallmark of good mental health. Being aware of a feeling, asking yourself, should we act on this feeling? Should we punch somebody? Should we go for a run? What do we need to do? Should we just relax and let the feeling go? Should we process it? Think about it? So I say this. The next time you have some me time, some solitude, and you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I want you to take a deep breath. Honestly, if you keep at it, you will feel better. This is the process. And you know, our health is dependent on staying mostly in a state of rest and digest as far as our nervous system, our automatic nervous system is concerned. So we want to be mostly calm. If we go back to our evolutionary past, we were very relaxed, happy people. We didn't work that much. We hunted and gathered about 20 hours a week. We spent most time trying to attract mates and having fun with mates. We spent a lot of time playing. Adult play is something that's unique to our species. And we played with our children and we climbed trees. And yes, every once in a while, we had to go into a state of high arousal by outrunning a lion. But that wasn't most of the time. And today... 
we're in a high arousal state all the time. So next time you're alone and you feel like picking up your phone, watching TV, you can't stand to be bored, I'm going to ask you to stay still. Listen to your feelings. Take a deep breath. You will get more creative. All right. When we come back, can we talk about white girl box braids? You don't know what that is? It's a thing, and it's controversial right now, and I have some opinions. You are listening to KFI AM 640. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. You can listen everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, so this thing happened to me today. My own daughter, she's 21 and knows everything now, hung up the phone on me. Of course, I didn't raise her to do that, but obviously she had some emotional regulation to work on. I guess she needs to meditate more. But the conversation was this. My younger daughter, and you may not, may or may not know, my children are biracial, African-American, and Irish-Canadian. And my younger daughter has a friend who's a German exchange student a white girl with blonde hair who recently got white girl box braids. Now, if you don't know what that is, think of long black girl braids on like Beyonce. I used to call them Janet Jackson braids because in my day, Janet Jackson wore them. But they're very long, thin braids cut into squares at the scalp called box braids. And they are apparently, I've done a little research, they're hugely in fashion with white girls in Berlin right now. So, This is something that this German girl would have been exposed to. Secondly, uh, I myself had white girl box braids in high school when a certain movie came called 10 came out starring Bo Derek. And I was modeling at the time and all the models got them and we wore them on the runways and it was just fully accepted. So my older daughter, who's very progressive and liberal and judgmental at college in Boston, sees it on social media and says, who's the racist white girl with the box braids? And I said, oh, come on. She goes, it's cultural appropriation. And I said, honey, it's just fashion. The fashion industry takes bits and pieces all the time. Appropriation means mocking. This is not mocking. She said, oh, mom, you don't understand. And click went the phone. Well, I got to work with my heart beating. Yeah, I needed to go meditate after that. And so I decided to ask a colleague, someone who has a podcast herself. The podcast is called... KFI, don't at me. Yes, the at sign, don't at me. And her name is December Brown. She is a producer here at iHeartMedia. And December, I have seen you with box braids before. Yes. And that's okay, right? Tell them why that's okay. Oh, yes. That is my go-to style. I switch up my hairstyle a lot. So braids are just super easy for me to wear because I can have that style for two, three weeks at a time, even longer, two, three months if I want to. So why is it okay for you to have them... And maybe in my daughter's opinion, not okay for this other girl to have them. So I see where your daughter's coming from, but I wouldn't say that it's racist. My problem with people who are not black or just say white, a white person wearing braids is that it's the conversation that surrounds the braids. Like when you think about like the Kardashians braids, they call them now boxer braids. Me and my black friends were looking at each other like, what are boxer braids? What is this? It was like a new name that was created. They're cornrows. That's what they've always been called. If they're down to your scalp and they're you know, going back to the back of your head, they're cornrows. So them calling them boxer braids 
it's like you're kind of erasing the history and creating a whole new history. So somebody that's your daughter's age, who's what, like 15 years old, mm-hmm. her and her friends, all they know is the new trend. They don't know that like these are cornrows and like that's what your grandma or somebody else was talking about, you know, or doing. It's like a whole new thing to them now. Yeah. So I didn't say it and I led you into it. So December Brown is African-American yeah. and she can you can wear your braids. Yeah. Now, this is the argument of my daughter, too. She said, Mom, when black girls get fired every day in America and lose their jobs for having these kinds of braids, the fact that a white girl can take them and walk through life with such privilege doesn't seem fair. No, it's not fair. That is the huge issue. And that's the conversation that I'm talking about. It's like, why did, you know, a white woman, why did it take a white woman to wear these braids to make it cool? Like, these are the styles that we go to because our hair is so hard to manage on a daily basis. I don't, I'm not able to just wake up and go with my hair. Like, I have to style it the night before. I have to twist it on a Sunday night so that it lasts me throughout the next Sunday, you know? So it takes a long time for me to deal with my hair. So braids are so much easier for me. And then when you come to work and then your boss is like, oh no, that's not going to cut it. It's like, that look is too ethnic or too uh, ghetto or just, you know, it's too much or whatever. But I love working here at iHeartMedia because we have eight different stations here and everybody is so extremely diverse. But I know friends that have been like fired from their jobs at restaurants because of their braids. Or I know there was a case of one woman after the, you know, the big hype with Boderic braids and all that came out and she got fired for discrimination or she fired and she, she got fired and she sued for discrimination and the judge ruled in her job's favor saying that, uh, telling the black woman, you only got these braids because of the movie and it's not a part of your culture. How can you say that? <laughs> so he's telling a black woman you can't have yeah. braids, but a white woman could. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, exactly. So, like, no, these are totally a part of our culture. Oh this gosh. is how my mom did my hair as a child. This is how my mom did her hair. Like, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As, so, you know, I've had two heads of hair like that my whole life to take care of my kids, right? Yeah. But also, I have very curly hair. So even my own flat iron and blow-drying life has been its own drama in my life. Uh, but yes, my friends were always amazed that Sunday was hair day in my house when my kids were little <laughs> yeah. and in school. Yeah. And it was a whole day of hair getting ready for the week. Yep. In fact, when my oldest daughter was in kindergarten, she went to a Catholic school, not even the whole year because I ended up pulling her out. I'll tell you why I pulled her out in a minute. But um, there was only one other girl of color in the class. Her mother was African from Africa. And in the dress code booklet, it said no braids and no beads. And when I went to the administration to ask, they said, well, it's distracting. The The beads make noise. Yeah. So I went to the other mother, the African mother, and said, hey, there's this rule here. What do you think of it? Because truthfully, when you have a five-year-old, getting to braid their hair and not having to touch it for six weeks is a dream. I mean, wash it, but not having to (laughs) do stuff. And uh, she said, well, she was kind of a rule follower. And she said, well, they make the rules. We just follow the rules. And I thought, this poor mother and her daughter's hair was always flat ironed or tied back so carefully. I mean, probably the most ethnic of this five-year-old's do was a little Afro puffs on the sides. And um, 
But she had to assimilate. Like she had to she do had that. She had to do that. To go to that school. And right. like sometimes you just have to do that. Like I know my grandma would tell me, like you have to straighten your hair for special occasions or like graduation or just any kind of dinner party or something like that. Like to be considered classy, your hair should be straight. straight. Right? Yeah. So now it's like you see this ownership now of a lot of black women owning their natural hair. And, love it. I love it. You know, it. Doing braids and doing natural hair, like I'll go on dates now with my hair, just like I've washed my hair and I put the conditioner and the creams in it and I'm just wearing it natural out. Like I would have never done that 10 years ago. Yeah, I would have never. I was at Starbucks the other day and there was a woman with the most beautiful, huge afro. And I said to her, oh, my God, I love your hair. It must be so much work. She goes, it is. You think natural wouldn't be work, but I'm picking it. It gets so much work. It's it's so much work. But she also we had such a lovely conversation about hair. And she seemed so like just open and happy that I complimented her on her hair. Because, yeah. you know, it's like, that's something I could never get to do. And I find it so beautiful. Yeah. Here's why I ended up pulling my child out of that Catholic school. Uh, they were doing self-portraits one day and they were handed a blank face and told to color it their skin color mm-hmm. and given a set of crayons. My daughter had come from a very creative preschool and felt very purple that day <laughs> and colored her face purple. The teacher came along wrinkled it up in front of the class, threw it in the trash, gave her a fresh one and said, you need to use a brown crayon because you have brown skin. Oh my God. And no one else in the class had to use a brown crayon except I guess the African girl. And as soon as my daughter told me at the end of the day, I'm like, we're not going back there. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> we're done. What? Like, why can't a five-year-old feel purple? I, I hate that. Like they're just squashing her creativity yeah, right there. Right there. And also saying you're different from everyone yeah. else. You can't. What if she'd picked up the uh, whatever that pinky skin tone color that the other kids were using? What yeah, if she that, picked like, up that peach crayon? color? Peach yeah. color. Right. What if she used that one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, I was nope, so upset. You can't do that. No. Nope. OK. So back in the late 80s, because times are changing as fast as we go. Right. Right. Madonna was quoted. She was asked by Rolling Stone magazine at the start of her career. She was wearing braids uh, and they asked her, do you feel black? And she said. Is from the late 80s. Oh, yes, all the time. That's a silly, silly thing to say, isn't it? When I was a little girl, I wished I was black. All my girlfriends were black. I was in Pontiac, Michigan, and I was definitely the minority in the neighborhood. White people were scarce to me. All of my friends were black, and all the music I listened to was black. I was incredibly jealous of all my black girlfriends because they could wear these braids in their hair that stuck up everywhere. So I'd go through this incredible ordeal of putting wire in my hair and braiding it around the wire so I could make my hair stick up. I used to make cornrows and everything. But if being black is synonymous with having soul, then yes, I feel I am. Hmm. How does that quote age today in your opinion? Yeah, I problematic to me because you don't deal with the stuff that black people go through. You like their fashion, our fashion, I can say you like our fashion and our music and what we create. But like when you walk down the hallway, you're not treated like a black person. Mm -hmm. And that ties into so much of who we are, because, you know, when I get dressed or something, if I was to, you know, like, yeah, I would say like my white boyfriend or something like that, like. I'm always conscious in the back of my head that people are definitely always staring at us and how I look like I probably shouldn't wear my huge hoops and like, you know, my long nails and all that kind of stuff. Like people always kind of like have questions. They look, they're like, this is not right. Like something's weird here. You know, like they always are staring at me if I'm too black, you know, or something. So it's, um, 
you know, it's fun for Madonna to probably put that on on a Saturday night. But then like Monday morning, she doesn't have to look like that. She won't look like that, you know? Mm. So it's it, for me, like when I even started my job here at KFI, because I come from a culture that like we've had to assimilate. So my mom's like, you've got to get rid of your long nails and you cannot wear all those rings and straighten your hair. And then you start your job. <laughs> and I'm like, but this is what I like to, this is, this is the fashion. Like I look at my grandma, super long nails, hundreds of gold rings on her hands and braids and all this stuff goes back to just our culture. But it's like, you know, that it's not what you're supposed to look like. And so that's why, you know, people get fired or they feel some type of way walking around. Like it really makes you self-conscious of who you are. So Madonna doesn't feel like that. She doesn't feel self-conscious on the inside about this, you know? So like, when we do, when we are prideful of stuff, like we're super prideful of it, like that's ours, you know? So like, it's a little messed up for you to just come in and be like, oh, I love it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to do it and all this stuff. But like, you still are a part of the problem, making us feel shamed, you know? I hear you. And I have tears in my eyes as you say this. And I think about my daughters out in the world without me present. Yeah. What do you think the solution is? Because I know it sounds terrible to say, but making something mainstream makes it more acceptable for you too. Yeah, I know. That's the catch-22. Yeah, I know. And that's what I always say is like the problem. Like it took other people to put on our fashions to make it cool, you know? So I don't, you know, I know that people are making it mainstream, but like it's kind of like a gimmick to them, but there's so much more pride coming out with black women and rocking their natural hairstyles and stuff that it kind of overwhelms that gimmick that they're doing. So at this point, it's like, you know, like it sucks that, you know, they want to change the name to something like uh, box braids or whatever, or Kardashian braids or whatever else, or, or Boderic braids, you know, it's like, that's not the name, but like, you know, right now. And I say, honestly, due to YouTube, to be honest with you and digital, it's like we're all connected now. So now, like, I'll see a woman, like, now I, this is how I got started. I started watching women in New York wearing their natural hair. And I was like, I'm going to start doing that. And that makes me, now I feel beautiful, beautiful because other women are doing it. So now we see everybody doing it now. So now we're like, okay. And then you have this overwhelming amount of black women that are taking pride in their own stuff. And we don't feel ashamed anymore. Like That's like I where said, the solution is. That's the solution. And it's like slowly happening. The fact that we're all connected now. And I have to say, even the conversation we're having right now is prickly and uncomfortable, mm. but it needs to be had. Yeah. And we wouldn't be having it if that German exchange student didn't get blonde braids. That's true. December, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. I love you. You can listen to December on her podcast called KFI Don't At Me. December Brown. Thank you. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640 and everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. And we are back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. I have a very special guest in the studio, a real human. Well, she even has a dog with her. Uh, I'd like to introduce Lane Moore. Lane is a comedian an author and a musician and author of the book, How to Be Alone If You Want to or Even If You Don't. 
Hi, Lane. How are you? Hi, I'm really good. Good to be here. Thanks for being here. And you're yeah. New York based, so it's really nice to have somebody. In yeah, LA. absolutely. Yeah. One of the I met you because we were on somebody else's show together, yep. <laughs> and I found you very smart and very funny. And I said, "Oh my gosh, my listeners would love you." Mm-hmm. And I, we want to specifically, well, let's talk briefly for sure because it's important about your book. Why'd you write it? Yeah, I would love that. Um, so I wanted to write the book because I feel like you'll appreciate a lot of this. Um, I had kind of a really, kind of a really, I had a really difficult childhood and I've been on my own most of my life. And I wanted to write a book that, you know, my background is as a comedian. I was a writer for The Onion and I, I do all these different things. But there's also a side to me that's always been really drawn to psychology and sociology and how people interact. And um, so I've been on my own since I was a really small child. And I've noticed that there is this kind of like loneliness epidemic, I think, for everybody, not even just, you know, my generation, but everybody. And I think so much of it really does trail back to your childhood and what you did or didn't get. And then it makes it that much easier or that much more difficult to connect with friends, uh, sometimes even in work environments, to form relationships, all these things. So I kind of wanted to take readers through a journey of like, well, I've been in an extreme situation of being on my own pretty much since I was born. Here's what I've kind of learned about loneliness and connection. And, you know, and it's it's funny and real, but just wanting to say the things no one really talks about because you're not supposed to talk about things that are this raw and vulnerable and honest. And I don't think you can apply for a job as a comedian unless the first line of your resume <laughs> says bad childhood. Right, right exactly. <laughs> Stuff's been hard. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, you were primed and ready and well-trained for, sure, for yeah. the comedy part. <laughs> Very well, um, yeah. And also, you know, we know scientifically that isolation is one of the worst things for human beings. And even yeah. though technology was designed to bring us closer, it's actually kept us further apart. It's become well, Yeah, because it, it, it makes it harder, you know, um, one of the things I realized for me is I'd always kind of assumed everyone had a really awful childhood. Nobody gets along with their parents. You know, everybody was because as a child, that's what you do to survive. You tell everybody you tell yourself everyone at school is getting exactly what I'm getting, because otherwise I, I don't think you could survive if you knew that you should be getting something great and you're getting something awful. So then as an adult, you're bombarded with social media and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait. Everyone had something radically different. Everybody's richer than me. Everyone's hotter than me. Everyone's happier than me. Like. I think that has so much to do with the isolation. On social media, they're pretending to be all those things. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. But it's so easy when it's like midnight and you're at home alone with your phone and you're just like, everyone has the perfect parents. They're posting about them. And when in reality, I found that so many of my friends who were posting those things actually have really challenging relationships, but there's such pressure to be like, look at my perfect family. Look at my perfect partner. Look at my perfect friends. I have them. I swear. And And so what is the biggest message of the book? How to be alone if you want to, and even if you don't. I mean, I think it's, so I didn't want it to be prescriptive because one of the things that I I hate most about many, it has self-help elements for sure. I think it has self-help and memoir elements. But one of the biggest um, things that we see in a lot of people's uh, memoirs, self-help books about dealing with loneliness or trauma, it's very prescriptive. And at the end, it's like, I got married to Greg and now I'm fine. And I hate that message so much. And I don't believe that there's any one thing that anybody can do to magically be healed. And you can't have another person magically heal you. That's so true. And so um, I really just wanted to show the things that helped me. And one of the things I talk about in the book is like is stranger luck, which is finding um, my definition is finding these like 
have you ever had this happen where it's like a very intimate connection with somebody you just met, but they're like very open, very airplanes, airplanes. You know why on airplanes, by the way, we have a heightened sense of fear of dying unconsciously. (laughs) So we're almost giving our last rights to that stranger. And so there's this instant intimacy and they also know they'll never see you again. Right. 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 (laughs) Yeah. But it's this beautiful thing. And, And for me, I talk about in the book that I've, I've had a heightened element of that where it's like my whole life has been peppered with like meeting people who immediately loved me and like thought of me as family and all these things because I, I look at it as like God's consolation prize. Like I didn't get it where I should have gotten it. But there's this immediate intimacy that people feel with me, I think, maybe because I've experienced that much pain. And so I have more empathy. So there's this like openness. But I think that I met someone I, I did a book signing last night at the Grove and this woman was like, I've only had I only have one support system, one person who's a support system. And I was like, that's enough. Like, I think we just need to value whatever whatever connection we can get. I think Yes, and some gratitude. So yeah. uh, if you haven't seen the book yet, it just came out, How to Be Alone, if you want to, and even if you don't. Okay, Lane Moore, there's another reason why I invite yes. you to be on this show. <laughs> and this is because uh, you have some things to say about Tinder and men and their profiles. Not just yes. on Tinder. We should say every dating app Every out dating there. app. Yeah, it really is all of them. My some latest people will try to tell you. Yeah, one of oh, choice that's fun is Bumble. Yes. And uh, I was recently sick in bed for a couple of days because I never have time to go on those apps. That's the problem. People are like, why don't you have a relationship? I have relationships with so many girlfriends, yep. with my children, with so many work colleagues. Which is acceptable. And if you were yeah. a man, no one would ever question it. Right. But that's another there's thing. There's not a minute left to think about dating. No. However, <laughs> since I was stopped dead in my tracks in bed, almost dead, I thought I'll just start doing some swiping and see what's there. And I actually got a guy on the phone. There's a texting for a bit and then give me your phone number thing. And, you know, men are, we're evolutionary speaking, supposed to be protecting our eggs, no matter what our age, okay, even if our eggs are old, um, from men and trying to make very careful, selective decisions. And they are supposed to be, they are supposed to be a peacock showing their tail so that we will eventually show them our eggs, right? Ah, I never thought about that, but of course. Very important. So this dude says, within the first three and a half minutes of the phone call, so I just want to make clear, you do, you are okay with my parameters. And I'm like, what parameter? He said something like, I'm looking for something kind of part-time or whatever. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm busy too, whatever. And he goes, no, no. Are you willing to have sex with me on a first date? My parameters? And I literally thought to myself, dude, is that your A-game? Well, but so that's, and that's all I could think about when you were telling the story and you're like, okay, because I had forgotten that absolutely that makes sense evolutionarily because so many men now are not giving you their A-game at all. No. They are giving you like their D-minus game and women are programmed to be like, I guess it's better than no game at all. And it's really upsetting. <laughs> but- it's true. Women are 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 taking... Uh, relationships and putting up with things they wouldn't in the past because we have an oversupply of successful women. Yeah. And an undersupply of male mates. Absolutely. So, so when we come well, back, there's a Lane, lot of male mates, but not great ones. Yeah. When we come back, Lane, let's open up your Tinder. Yes. And you can uh, t- describe some profiles and let's give some good advice to men. Absolutely. Too. I yeah. Mean, I'd love it's to. fun, but let's, let's make it news you can use yes. as well. You are listening to KFI AM 640. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. We are live everywhere and on the iHeartRadio app. Help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. 
You are back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Lane Moore, let's look at your Tinder. Oh, before we do, uh, give them your social media so people can follow you. Oh, yes. I'm at Hello Lane Moore on Instagram and Twitter and yeah, all the things. Hello Lane Moore. Okay. So what do you see in there in your Tinder? Okay. So we have a guy named Brutus. Um, Brutus is nude on a couch uh, wearing only white knee socks a Christmas stocking covering his genitals. Uh, he has a candy cane in his mouth and a bottle of what looks like balsamic vinegar. And would, I think that's balsamic <gasps> vinegar. Would yeah. that be his main profile picture? That is his main profile photo. Um, and he says he's, he's his bio says only attracted to you if you aren't attracted to me. So he's attracted to everyone in this room. Uh, this <laughs> profile is horrifying. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't know why this would be. It's a very specific vibe. It's yeah, a very well, specific... well, the vibe would be I'm only looking for sex, but also right. <laughs> by saying I'm only attracted to you if you're not into me right. shows his attachment disorder. Sorry, yes. Brutus, but he basically I talk says, so much about attachment theory and how to be alone. Oh, my gosh, go. we could go off another time. Okay, he basically yeah. has an avoidant attachment style. Yeah, he may even have an anxious attachment style, meaning he right. pines after those yes. who aren't into I him. I have an anxious attachment style. Yeah. Just... And he's going to lead with his body. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Oh, I'm sure he will. Okay, dudes. A, don't do that. Yeah, don't. Just oh. pass. Okay. I mean, I think he thinks. I think he probably thinks it's funny, and it's not. It's just really dark. Yeah. And just and I like the thing. I always um. So the basis behind this, I do a comedy show called Tinder Live, um, that I tour with in the country, and I go through this live. And my main theory is that these guys are actually a lot of these guys are actually good guys, and they just don't know how this is coming across. So. That's yeah. just backstory. Um, okay, Brutus, good guy. You're out. Swipe away. Yeah, you're out. Swipe away. Um, all right. So this is Timothy. Timothy's main profile is a photo of four children. <laughs> Lord. So it he looks can like reproduce. From, uh, well, it looks like it might be him as a kid. It might be like his children. Oh, like, yeah. That's from the 70s from or like 80s the 70s or something. or 80s. He says he's 24. So maybe oh. from the 90s or it's his parents as kids. I don't know. But he says, I'll buy you pizza if you let me touch your butt. My drunk alter ego is Tom. Okay, his name is Timothy, so when he's drunk, he becomes Tom. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with this. It's like an Olin Mills photo of, like, these little children. When guys lead with sex first. Right. Are they assuming that we are wired the same way they are? And we're just, I mean, and the thing, so I was thinking about this the other day. Like, if I could, I mean, not to be, like, too graphic, but I I really believe if women could, like, go to a bar and pick out any man and he would, like, go down on them and definitely, like, make sure they have an orgasm and for it to be safe and consensual and wonderful, I think women would be as open sexually if we knew that. But, like, that's not, most sexual experiences aren't like that. No. So that's And the I thing. also don't think women just want to get serviced physically. I know they don't, but I just mean, I, I don't think that we're as uptight as men think we are. I think that men yeah. think that like, oh, well, women don't like sex. And it's like, we do, but we have to like screen you. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. But if we knew that it'd be safe and wonderful and like, who wouldn't? Yeah. They wouldn't just be like, okay. Yeah. Like that that's dude I mean. lost it with me by saying it on the phone. He right. should have like swallowed his words and said, let's have a nice dinner and chat. Right. I forgot to tell you what he followed it up with after he said, so, you know, you need to be the kind of person who will have sex with me on the first date. And I was like, really? And he said, uh, 
I mean, I don't want to waste my time just chatting with a woman. Oh, okay. So that's something they say on Tinder all the time. And so I bet, my point is, I bet that he left that conversation thinking that you hate sex. Whereas he right. didn't understand that it's like, no, your version of sex where like we just submit and there's nothing at right. all. No, no, terrifying. I told him very clearly. Actually, a wo- the route to a woman's vagina is through her head and my yes. head's not spinning right now. You should move no. along. Well, my that's head's spinning, said, but not in a good way. So <laughs> okay. I don't know what Timothy is doing, but it's not good. Um, all right. So the next one is Austin. Uh, Austin seems like a cute, nice guy. He says, hello, I like chai lattes and whatever else women like, which I think is funny and cute. Um, obviously, he's like joking about his desperation, which I think is relatable. What do you think? Yeah, about that? I think that's really I honest. That's like, I'm going to I'm going to be cool because women <laughs> if women like things, I'll like it. I'll go along. I'll be right. the yes man. Right. What do you need, lady? <laughs> Is he cute? What's his picture? Yeah, it's a little bit cut off, but like he seems like a cute dude. Yeah, nerdy guy. I'm like, okay, he's just a nerdy cute dude. Okay. Um, This is Armando. Uh, There's just a photo of him drinking a beer and his bio just says stuff. That's just it. Yeah. He's just drinking Why a beer. would a woman ever be interested in that? I got to say, now you're, you're searching young men. I search yeah. older men. Do you know how many have are on a boat with a beer belly holding fish? I have heard that. So on Tinder Live, I do swipe through 18 to like 85. Oh, okay. But a lot of these that are coming up are like, yeah, early 20s. But it's it's very strange. There was a man who I talked to on a Tinder Live show in Brooklyn during the like New York City blackout. And I told him, so part of the show, I play a really dumb, kind of naive, insane woman that a lot of men really love. (laughs) Um, And so I told a man who was like in his 60s, I was like, what are you doing in the blackout? I just fell in a sewer. And he kept talking to me. He wasn't dissuaded by this. He was like, who's this sewer woman? Like, (laughs) it's very bizarre. I don't know. So it's interesting, like how many men on Tinder just want to. Like just want on any dating app, just want to have and sex. It, they don't care. Yeah, and well, you know, there've been research to show that if a strange man walks up to uh, women and asks, you know, would you like to have sex with me? Ninety nine percent of the women say no. But, but if a woman, yeah. any woman who walks up to any man and says, "Do you want to have sex?" It's like ninety percent of the men say yes. Really? Yes, to a stranger it's woman. So, because, and the ones who wow. say no say, well, I have a girlfriend, but can I get your number in case it doesn't work out? That's so they such a don't say bummer. <laughs> never mind. I'm never dating again. <laughs> men, want, men want short-term relationships, and they want multiple partners more than women, and that's just a reality. I think we have to understand oh, that. Yikes. So, Lane, I want to say just gotta get lucky, good luck to you on the apps Thank and you so with much. your show, Touring. Yeah. The, her book is called How to Be Alone If You Want to and Even If You Don't. Written by Lane Moore. You can follow her on social media at Hello Lane Moore. And it's a pleasure to meet you Thank and you have so you here in yeah. the studio live. It's yeah. on Tinder Live yeah. here in LA. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And let's keep in touch. Coming up next on the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show, a very special treat for you. We are going to play an entire episode from our podcast, Mating Matters. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Listen everywhere on the iHeartRadio app and on KFI AM 640. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640 and everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, As many of you know, producer Brooke Peterson and I have a fabulous podcast called Mating Matters. It looks at the evolution of pretty much every human behavior, and it almost always boils down to reproduction. Here's our episode of Mating Matters called The God Who Clubs. Welcome to Mating Matters, the podcast that looks at human behavior through a lens of reproduction. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, and I believe most everything we do 
is designed to increase our mating opportunities. This episode is called The God Who Clubs, and we'll explore how religion has created clubs with rules around love, sex, and marriage. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins. Religion. Just the word alone can conjure up a host of feelings. Depending on which religion you were raised in, if any at all, and your ability to fit in with its teachings, the word religion might evoke anything from memories of punitive lessons filled with shame to warm feelings of songs, prayers, and a supportive community. Grammy winner Mandisa, in her Ode to Cancer Patients, sings to the best of religious support in her hit song, Overcomer. You might be surprised to learn that religiosity has been associated with longevity. Religious people tend to be healthier and live longer. That's partly because of the mandate to live a healthy lifestyle that comes with most every religion. Clean living is the rule of the day. There's also the healing power of social support. Isolation is not good for humans. And to take that one step further, on a deep psychological level, God can become a secure attachment figure. The Australian Christian group Hillsong United holds the record for having a song that spent 61 weeks at number one on Billboard Hot Christian Songs chart. Their song, Oceans, talks about God as a feeling of security. When oceans arise, my soul will rest in your But the early days of religion formation were less about a loving God manifested psychologically as a secure boyfriend and more about tribal affiliation. You know, religions are the ultimate tribes. In our evolution, religions created group meaning, cooperation over food procurement, in-group rules of conduct. In short, religions helped people trust each other. No matter where you travel in the world... If you meet someone who shares your religion, you feel you can trust them. You both follow the same set of rules. Tribal affiliations are very strong with the religions because if I know you, I feel safer. If I don't know you, I don't feel as safe. Um, Who is my neighbor? You know, we have a lot of. I'm Dr. Darnese Martin. And I'm Assistant Professor of Religion and African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University. I am a cultural and historical uh, scholar of religion. So that means that I study religions in their context, in their history, and in the culture. And I do that with pretty much what we call the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. As a historian, Dr. Martin studies the religions most commonly seen in Western culture. Who do I associate with? And my tribal slash religious affiliations tell me who it's appropriate to mingle with and who it's not. There's a lot of that throughout um, the, the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures and Christianity. And some of these tribal loyalties and conflicts still play out today. We don't really, in the United States, we don't live in a polytheistic world anymore. But we do still see this kind of our God, their God thing. Religions develop out of the need for in-group loyalties and out-group hostilities. And so, yeah, this is a way of creating a safe tribal community by saying God's on our side and by staying loyal to our gods, 
God will protect us and make us strong. And we even see, you know, remnants of that in current politics today, you know. My name is Ryan Bell, and uh, for 20 years I was uh, an evangelical pastor. Today I call myself a humanist, um, which to me is like, you know, the best that Christianity has to offer without the the, uh, supernatural part. According to former pastor Ryan Bell, besides creating trusting bonds, religions also serve to create strict group conformity. This was necessary as we evolved from small tribes to larger groups where we couldn't recognize all the members. At its heart, religion is about social control, about keeping people in line. It's about punishment and reward. But religions do one other thing really well. They expand their membership. Some religions do this through amazing recruitment strategies. If you want to know Jesus, come and see. Religions are also especially good at increasing their membership through human reproduction. The founding fathers of most religions, and yes, they were mostly men, either consciously or unconsciously created rules around sex that increased the chances that their membership would multiply. Most religions have rules around premarital sex, marriage, birth control, abortion, divorce, homosexuality, and even masturbation. And to enforce these rules, a punitive God, of course. And so, right, I think this punitive God is the God who will punish you if you step out of line, but will reward you if you stay in line. And it's a powerful social motivation, has been for thousands of years. It's known that religions with the most angry God, who promises an afterlife of hell, tend to grow the fastest. God as a big cop in the sky is a psychological concept that developed to instill fear in religious congregants who might want to break the rules or cheat. For instance, the Muslim call to prayer. In many urban centers in the world, it blasts out from loudspeakers five times a day to remind devout Muslims to stop and pray. I'm Tariq Shaki. I'm affiliated with the Islamic Center of Southern California. I'm on their religious committee board, and I do a lot of volunteer work with the mosque in Pasadena where I live. And I'm a dad. That's my main title. You know, I lived in Egypt for a short time, a couple couple of years, actually. And it's interesting because you kind of come to rely on it as a marker. And it kind of divides up your day um, in a way that, is healthy. I feel like it kind of, you know, pulls you out of your busy life and your job and it says, okay, it's, you know, afternoon prayer. And even if you don't stop and take the time to pray, you're remembering that there is a God and that people are getting together and praying. And it kind of connects you back to something bigger than you um, just by hearing it. Evidence from psychological studies shows that the Muslim call to prayer serves another purpose. When the call to prayer is amplified particularly loudly, say near markets or places of business, people are much less likely to cheat. The same probably goes for church bells. A reminder to be a good person. God is watching. I should also add that once religions become very established and congregants have intergenerational transmission of rules, yes, a shaming grandma and parents, God becomes less punitive and more loving. The exception is modern Islam, according to Tariq Shaki. So interestingly enough, I feel like Islam came to a very, very backwards traditional um, culture on the Arabian Peninsula where women had you know, no rights. They were sold as property. They were inherited. 
when their husbands died. So initially it was seen as kind of a liberation, like, okay, women can choose their spouses. They can inherit and own their own property. They can decide, you know, who and when to marry and divorce. Um, but I feel like over the years, it's kind of the traditional Islam has gone back to like the pre-Islamic tradition where it's become um, much more conservative. And I feel like women has lo- have lost a lot of rights that they were initially given at the outset of Islam. In the beginning, when the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran were written, many rules of conduct were designed to increase reproductive odds. Here's Dr. Janice Martin again. Yeah, when we talk about the commonalities in the different religions, the different Christian religions, we can pinpoint things like uh, marriage is the ideal union, and children are a gift from God. Children are the way to um, live out the plan that God has for humanity as part of our salvation, in fact. Um, and in particular, the, the Mormons have a particular way of looking at procreation as this divine mandate. But overall, the different Christian groups really come at this as God has ordained a certain way for us to live. We should be married, one man, one woman, and make children. Marriage, of course, helped more children to live to grow up. Having two people with a biological interest in offspring always increases survival odds. And if sex outside of marriage isn't allowed, sex inside of marriage also has plenty of rules, too, particularly for women, depending on the religion. In Christian marriage, you're giving yourself to one another. Your body is not just yours anymore. So you give yourself to your husband. He gives himself to you. And so if he asks you and you do have a headache and you don't want to have sex right then, you do it anyway. There's a reproductive reason for this. The social pressure is you don't want him to go outside of the marriage. That would be your fault if you're not enough for him. And then his seed could go somewhere else and not stay in appropriate Places such as the religion, the household is now defiled. In the Jewish faith, fear that the seed will be sent outside of the household is less an issue than the seed must be controlled within the household. While Christians are told they can have as much sex as they want at any time of the month in the marital bed, unless they're practicing natural family planning and want to skip ovulation week, Orthodox Jewish couples have a fascinating practice designed to build up sexual desire and prime them for fertilization. I'm Mia Adler-Ozer, and I'm a clinically licensed psychotherapist, and I happen to have a specialty in working with Orthodox Jewish couples uh, on marriage as well as dating and sexuality. And Mia Adler-Azair practice. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is what she preaches. I am an Orthodox observant practicing Jew. And between my husband and I, we have nine children. So we are both. It's a second marriage for both of us. So it's three of mine, four of his and two of ours. In the Jewish faith, there are significant rules around sexuality and sexual relationship within the context of marriage. Um, of course, it is absolutely assumed that there is not, not only no sexual 
uh, relationship before marriage, there's literally not even touch. People do not even hold hands. Um, there's no physical contact whatsoever before the, the wedding night. And after, after the wedding, the, the rules around love and sex relate to a woman's menstrual cycle. During menstruation and for about five days after, the husband and wife create physical space between each other. And it is to the extent that they do not share a bed, uh, they do not hand things to one another. Um, there is, um, it's really looked at as a window of opportunity to focus on the friendship and the spiritual nature of the relationship and to put the physical aspects of it aside. And in the Muslim faith, this same dynamic plays out during prayer, where the sexes are kept separate. So I think traditionally there was this notion of you don't want to have the woman present because she will distract you from your worship. Or in, in prayer, you don't want to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the woman as you would the man because you would be thinking about her body and her skin and her shoulder and sexuality eventually would creep in. So the idea is that um, we're protecting men from themselves and protecting women from the men. And then, of course, what happens when you can't have what you want? It becomes much more desirable. So what tends to happen in this cycle uh, within the relationship around the woman's menstrual cycle is that not only does it set them up physically for um, pregnancy, because, you know, typically you're coming back together at the time of a woman's ovulation period. Um, but at the same time, you're also creating this wanting, this kind of longing, because you're, you're, you know, quote unquote, forbidden to have any kind of. Ah, uh, yes. The word no. The world's most powerful aphrodisiac. Religions have used it well to grow membership. No sex, except if it's with another member of the church. No premarital sex. No divorce. No birth control. And no abortion. No, 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 no. Sex researchers have long known that attraction plus obstacle, in this case the word no, equals major sexual arousal. You're listening to the podcast Mating Matters with Dr. Wendy Walsh on the iHeartRadio app and KFI AM640. We'll be right back after this. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM640 and on the iHeartRadio app. You are listening to a very special episode of my podcast, Mating Matters. The episode is called The God Who Clubs. I mentioned that most religion's founders were men. Yes, a kind of patriarchy. So the rules were slanted to benefit men a little more than women. Think about it. A woman can only actually have a baby about once a year. But theoretically, a man can have a baby every single day if he has access to plenty of women. According to Dr. Martin, in Christianity, men had leeway on the sex rules that has amounted to a sexual double standard. There's a thing called prostitution, right? So, of course, if you're going to go be with a prostitute, no, you're not marrying her. The men would have had more freedom to have sex with multiple partners. Of course, they're supposed to marry and have a family with a woman who's been identified as appropriate. But, of course, we see in the Bible there are stories about women who are prostitutes or alleged prostitutes. So we know that was going on, and they were not marrying them in any way, shape, or form. And this sexual double standard puts a lot of pressure on women. Your job is to receive your man, receive his seed, and, you know, conceive his children and give birth. I mean, of course, now in, in more progressive time, we don't have people saying that quite that way. But 
there are fundamentalist and evangelical kinds of Christians who really do still understand, like, you know, your marriage isn't complete unless you have children. You as a woman are not complete unless you're a mother. And not only a mother, women are also expected to be the holder of men's sexual boundaries. Even today, here's a clip from a YouTube video of a podcast called The Marriage Mentor by Jolene Engel and her husband, Eric Engel. Is your God's gal first and your husband's second. So you take your marching orders and your authority is from the word of God and you live that way. And as a result in pleasing God, your husband should be pleased unless he goes off with his perversions and tries to get you to sin. As if holding the boundaries in the marital bed isn't enough, the burden of chastity remains on women when they are single. In historic times, a father guarded his daughter's eggs, preventing access by a man outside of the religion or a man who couldn't support his offspring. But in today's age, with a highly sexualized media and pressure on young women to look like Instagram models and please their porn-exposed boyfriends, life can be psychologically painful. In order to navigate being a good girlfriend for a boy or a young man, she opens herself up to some sort of sexual activity because she wants the boyfriend. But she has to also navigate this other side, maybe that she's gotten from her family and her church that says good girls don't. God will be unhappy with you if you have sex. So she's got to figure out, okay, how can I do this? And so one of the things that we see young women and young girls doing is having oral sex, not thinking of it as um, real sex, having anal sex. Um, Because you can't get pregnant these ways and there will be no one to tell the tale. The pressure to be cute yet virtuous. Sexy, yet chaste, is probably the greatest female double bind that can lead to a host of mental health problems that express themselves as eating disorders, cutting, and even physical illness. So then you become sexy and hot, but then if you actually like any of it, if you actually become empowered by any of it as a teenage girl, even late teenage girl, now you've slipped over into the whore. Girls were cast out. Girls were um, relegated to sex work, prostitution, because you are no longer an appropriate match for any man. It is a fortunate woman who was able to navigate around all the landmines, protect her eggs until marriage, and with no sexual experience, become the sexually fruitful wife. But what if she were attracted to women? Or what if a religious man were more attracted to another man? The rule in Christianity regarding homosexuality is that thou shalt not be homosexual. In terms of homosexuality, the Jewish religion in general does not accept it. It is not permissible. In the Muslim faith, traditionally homosexuality has been seen as sinful no matter how you look at it. Homosexuality is definitely not God's plan. Going back even you know to the beginning of, of, of Genesis where a man and a woman are created by God and designed to procreate. Today, there are many forms of religions with openly gay pastors and welcoming and inclusive churches for members of the LGBTQ community. But when all the sex rules were originally set up, growing membership was the goal, and being gay wasn't seen as a way to do that. I should tell you here that anthropologists speculate that same-sex orientation stayed in our human gene pool because mothers who had a gay brother or sister had more offspring who survived. Child-free adults who could lend a helping hand, say gay uncles or aunties, also tended to their own genes that were carried by their nieces and nephews. Of course, 
Gay people also had their own children. Wink, wink. Religion gives the, the, the blueprint for procreation. People just, we all just grow up feeling like, oh, I'm going to have babies. I'm going to have babies. I'm going to have babies. And then the religions reinforce that. If homosexual behavior was off the menu in most religions, how about a natural human behavior called autosexual arousal? Or more simply, masturbation. The Bible says about wasting one seed, if you're a man, that you are definitely not supposed to do that. Because the idea is that that's the way you procreate. God has given humanity sex as a way to procreate. So to masturbate, for example, or to um, have sex with someone and pull out, or to have sex with women you don't intend to make children with, is a way that you're wasting something precious that God gave you for the purpose of creating children. Touching yourself is the gateway to the devil or the gateway to hell, and warns women in particular about pleasuring herself, that she should not, because that button, that button is Satan's doorbell, and you don't want to ring it. Religions also involved tribal warfare. Groups of humans fought over food, water, and territory. And even while at war, reproduction was a goal. The oldest weapon of war, one sadly still used too often today, is rape. Rape, it desecrates the woman and makes her impure, essentially permanently. Um, You see it in in the Hebrew scripture, in the Old Testament, Christian Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You see rape used as a weapon. Um, to to violate an entire community of people, you, you see it in the in the war in the Middle East with the Yazidi women being raped by ISIS um, soldiers. Besides taking marriageable young women off the market within their own tribe, thus reducing reproductive opportunities on the enemy's side, rape was also a chance to plant one's own seed in a rival. Rape could result in in children and children for the conquering um, side, and, of course, make the woman unavailable to her own community, um, given that she's now tarnished. She's not really eligible to bear children for her own people. When we think about the legacy of rape as a tool of religious warfare, of course, we're thinking that we have to think about domination and power. It's not enough that I just take your stuff. It's that I leave my mark upon you and your women And I enter your gene pool. You won't know whose babies those are. They might be mine. Now I have really done something to you that's going to last with you for generations. Have you noticed that I haven't been talking about Catholics much? I saved it to the very end for a couple reasons. One, I'm a recovering Catholic myself. And I admit... I've got little PTSD over the shame-based messages about sexuality from my own childhood. Yeah, Billy Joel, you know me. Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. But the other reason that I waited to tell you this is that I recently met a Catholic sex and marriage counselor who blew my mind just a little bit. First of all, let me say that I personally think that Catholics win the gold medal for growing the flock through procreation. I mean, think about it. They sent missionaries around the world, told people not to have sex, and if they did, to not use birth control. Ooh, that sexy aphrodisiac word, no. 
I think they even invented the missionary position. Boom! Millions and millions of Catholics were born all around the planet. But remember, I mentioned that once religions become more established, the psychological concept of God becomes a little more loving. My name is uh, Dr. Greg Popchak. I'm the executive director of the Pastoral Solutions Institute. I'm the associate professor of pastoral studies at the Holy Apostles College. I host More to Life on Sirius XM 130. I'm author of uh, uh, over 20 books on relationships, uh, psychology, and spirituality. Dr. Popchak says in today's Catholic Church, there really aren't a lot of rules. Uh, oddly enough, the, the, the rule is to love another person. And of course, um, we define love as working for the good of another person. Has the Catholic God become less punitive? Well, this seems to be the way Catholic scholar and counselor Dr. Greg Popchek explains the sex rules, which he calls ethics. But he says in modern times, an ethos applies. God as a punisher is replaced by individual conscience and compassion. Behavior that comes from the heart, right? So I could not cheat on my wife because I don't need the hassle, you know, of having an affair and what a pain in the butt that would be to cheat on my wife. And then I'd be faithful, right? But that would be an ethic. Um, An ethos is I don't cheat on my wife because I love my wife. He says that a misunderstanding exists about Catholicism because of one historic French bishop who trained a lot of Irish priests. His name was Bishop Jansen, and he apparently polluted sexuality with rules. Therefore, Irish Catholicism that dominated the U.S. Catholic culture became a punitive ideology. Jansenism. So they got infected with this Jansenism. Ireland got infected with Jansenism, brought it to the U.S. Um, that's not really Catholicism. In fact, like I said, it, the, the Jansenism was denounced twice uh, as a heresy by the Church. Um, and it, it, Jansenism tends to be this very rule-bound, you know, God's going to get you, sex is bad, pleasure is awful sort of uh, perspective on sexuality that, that really is contrary to what the core of Catholic thinking about all this stuff really is. In fact, Dr. Popchak explains the Catholic rules, you know, the big Catholic nose, no premarital sex, no birth control, no abortion, as a positive thing. You know, so saving sex for marriage is, is good for human flourishing. Um, what, uh, you know, you talk about no, no contraception. Um, that doesn't mean no family planning, by the way. Uh, what it means is stop treating, let's not treat healthy functioning parts of the body as if they were a disease. And let's stop treating children as if they were a disease. You know, let's let's value life. Hmm. Maybe the Catholics have simply rebranded. Their rules are now called soft rules. Oh, and even these have been known to increase membership through reproduction. The Catholics do it as well as all religions do it. Well, I would say the the obstacles that uh, religions put in place, the, the rules... Um, do definitely create a certain desire, right? And, and, and early marriage because life expectancies were short anyway. And so it creates within people a desire to, to hurry up and mate. The Torah specifically provides, uh, with a commandment and I'll lose, I'll use that term loosely. In Hebrew, the word is mitzvah. It's actually a positive commandment, meaning it's like you get bonus points, right? It's one of those things that, um, in the faith is looked on, looked upon as God smiling on you, if you will. Um, if you procreate, right, you bring additional Jewish kids into the world. Faithful Christian families should have more children, as many as they can. Be fruitful and multiply. Of course, religions do a whole lot more than just increase membership. 
For billions of people around the world, religious organizations provide coping strategies against fear and pain. They create comforting structure for many. They help the poor. And religions tend to be a safe haven of like-minded people for health-enhancing social support. But they wouldn't be here today if they hadn't created a near-perfect formula for human reproduction. And maybe babies have the last laugh. God has given you to me. Thanks for listening to Mating Matters. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh. Mating Matters with Dr. Wendy Walsh is produced by iHeartMedia. It is researched, written, and hosted by me, Dr. Wendy Walsh, and produced and edited by Brooke Peterson. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. I am live every Sunday from 4 to 6 with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show, and you can also find it on the iHeartRadio app. Thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.